Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, how are you? Welcome to the Other People Show. My name is Brad Listy. I am your host. I am here in Los Angeles. I hope you're okay wherever you are. I am in Los Angeles. Did I already say that? I can't remember. I'm very excited to have Duncan Birmingham on the program today for a Sunday episode. Duncan Birmingham uh, has an excellent new story collection out, a debut collection called The Cult in My Garage. It is available from Maudlin House. Duncan Birmingham lives here in town. He's a writer and a producer He uh, and, and a director. He's written and produced on uh, numerous television shows, including Marin, the Mark Marin show that ran on IFC, which you guys are probably familiar with. And also the show Blunt Talk over on Stars, which incidentally was created by Jonathan Ames, who has guested on this program in the past. Duncan Birmingham has made short films that have uh, debuted at Sundance and AFI. And as you're going to hear us discuss, he has directed a feature film or is in the process of directing a feature film. I think it's in post-production, something like that. And as a writer of fiction... His stories have appeared all over the place in literary magazines, including Nerve, Joyland, Mystery Tribune, and elsewhere. Duncan Birmingham and I coming up in conversation in just a minute. So it's the holiday season, and the uh, the Other People podcast w- would love to have your support. If you are out there and you listen and you like the show and you want to show the show some love this holiday season, you can do that at patreon.com slash other PPL pod, patreon.com slash other PPL pod for as little as $1 a month. You can support the show. There are different tiers, different levels. As you move up the scale, you can get things like t-shirt, 
uh, like a t-shirt, coffee mug, a tote bag, a book club subscription, and so on. So, uh, you know, get in the spirit. Support the podcast over at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Help keep the show going into the future. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So my guest today is Duncan Birmingham, and uh, we've known each other for a number of years, as it turns out. Both of us live here in town. We have had drinks a time or two and have always sort of been in touch over the internet. You know, it's like one of those things. I'm always like reading his tweets or whatever. And, uh, I remember the two of us going to a bar in Silver Lake together. I think it was like a tiki bar. And I remember I had not eaten anything and then I had a drink. I was like kind of drunk. You know what I'm saying? When you haven't had any food and you're like, ugh. but it was fun. You know, I was just like, wow, I should probably eat something. That's what I remember about that. And then, uh, you know, I read his story collection, knowing him a little bit and I got really happy because I was like, this is really fucking great. I know he's been working on fiction for a long time. I know that he has had a book in him and now he has a book that is out of him. It's out there and it is waiting for you. It is called the cult in my garage and it's out there, uh, on Maudlin house, wonderful indie press. So let's get to the conversation. I think you're going to enjoy it. I had fun catching up with my friend Duncan Birmingham. And one more time, his new story collection is called The Cult in My Garage. I ended up out here, you know, I'd only been to L.A. once. I was living in Boston. I was working at newspapers uh, as like a junior reporter. I was also taking classes at uh, Emerson in their master's program, and they had a campus out here. And I really felt like the newspapers were shuddering under my feet. It just didn't seem like there was a a way forward in journalism, which was kind of the only places that I'd worked. So when I had the opportunity, I did my last semester for that Emerson master's writing program out in L.A., had my car packed, thought I would stay unless I totally hated it. And, uh, you know, had written a few screenplays, I should say, in college. So so the plan was come out here, you know, 
write screenplays, write novels, be celebrated, be beloved, and uh, just, you know, crush this town. <laughs> How's that uh, working out for you? <laughs> uh, I've been crushed. I've been crushed. <laughs> but maybe not as badly as, yeah, it's, it's been okay. There were some great lucky breaks. I mean, I got a great job. My, my first industry job, I was an assistant on uh, a Showtime show. I'm really dating myself called Queer as Folk. I think there's a new Queer as Folk. So I'm talking about the first Queer as Folk <laughs> like 20 years ago. And I didn't even realize what a great gig a writer's assistant job was, what a great foot in the door that is. I was thinking, oh, I should be waiting tables and, and working on my screenplays, and my fiction. You know, uh, I, I didn't realize what a great gig I had. And, and that was a great first job. How did, so, how, how did you get it? Uh, that one, I, I was very lucky. I happened to be in the... Emerson office and uh, Emerson, the, the school has a campus out here. I was in the offices going through like their bulletin board looking for jobs. It was like my, and, and they, they had just gotten a call from an Emerson alum who was leaving that job and they, and they were about to post that on the bulletin board on whatever, you know, version of uh, email chat board they had at that point. And I was the first, I just happened to be in the office and I was like, I, I, I'd like to go and uh, interview for that job. And, uh, and I got it. Wow. Okay. See, there time- was a- Timing matters so much. There is such a thing as luck. I mean, you got to be the one, you got to raise your hand and speak up and go do the interview and, and take action. But like, you know, if you're not standing there at that time. Yeah. Yeah. No, that was a lucky break. And even, even when I got the job, I was like, nah, I don't even know if I'm going to take this job. Did, did not realize what a good uh, entry point that was. Lots of drama on Queers Folk. There were, uh, there were forged uh, uh, letters to the president of Showtime. There was a blender thrown. There was a fist put through a wall all in my first two weeks. Was this, of, was this a Scott, was this a Scott Rudin production or what? <laughs> uh, not that far from it. No, it was all, all really great people. I, I think there was a, a little bit of a disagreement on what direction the show was going. So, so I really had no um, horse in that race. I'm just the assistant, but it was very interesting to see kind of the, the clash between the younger writers and the older showrunners and, and that, kind of power struggle and, and how a writer's room worked and all that. Okay. Yeah. So, so what does, cause I think people listening will be interested to know this, but I, f- I feel like a natural progression, if there is one to becoming a Hollywood television writer where you're quote unquote in the room is to start as a writer's assistant. And usually, you know, the assistants, if they're, if they're good and if they, if people warm to them, they will eventually get hired to to write for the show uh is that correct first of all and then second of all what does the actual job of the writer's assistant entail generally speaking i think for the first part of your question that that does seem correct i did not know that at the time i left season two because I had a screenplay and that was circulating. I, I left a little prematurely thinking I was, you know, on the cusp of something that uh, I wasn't really on the cusp. I was very far away from the cusp, as it turns out. But I, I, I also didn't even own a TV at that point. So my, my love and passion was, was movies and was fiction. So I didn't really see myself going up the ladder at that show. Also, I, I wasn't really, you know, in, in that world, even though there were, there were straight writers later, I, I you know, I, I didn't know that world. So I, I might not have been, you know, the ideal hire in terms of like pitching myself as a writer, but I wish I had, I wish I had pitched myself 
more because yeah, that, that is the other way in is to start as a writer's assistant and, uh, you know, kind of pitch some ideas and be friendly with the producers and, and slip them a slip them one of your writing samples and, and then hopefully get a script and then hopefully get hired as some kind of staff writer. For me at the time, my, my job was, uh, you know, just really taking notes in the room. And also since we we're filming up in Canada, being like a liaison between the show showrunners and the writer's room and keeping, uh, you know, both entities informed of what was going on. So that was, that was a little different than most shows. Yeah. And so the writer's room was in LA and the, the physical production was up in Canada. The writers don't go up to Canada, do they? I think the writers would only go up if it was their episode. Right. So I, I might get an email or a call from the showrunners being like, hey, just to make sure we really want, you know, Tom to sleep with Brian in this episode. Uh, I'm forgetting the characters' names. Anyway, I would I would uh, bring that up in the room. Not always the most popular thing for the writer's assistant to be like echoing the showrunners' mandates in the writer's room. It, it, it was it, there was there was a, there was a lot of tension between those those two worlds. But it was it was a lot of fun to to see and work in that world. I always joked I was going to write my tell-all book, the straight story behind the scenes of. Uh, <laughs> Queer as Folk, American Reboot, Seasons 1 and 2. But I never get around to it, and I don't think anybody wants that. You never know. You never know. Maybe the world is pining for such a book. But I think about – you and I are pretty close in age, right? I'm 46. I don't know where – I don't want to – We're not – we're not – you're you're we're not just close. We are exactly 46. 46. Okay. You look great. I know this is a podcast, so I'm just going to tell everyone, Brad, you look great. I've had a lot of work done. Let's be honest. I'm fully, <laughs> All right. fully. I need some work done. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I want to say, generationally, you know, you said you started out working in, uh, for newspapers in Boston and could kind of sense the ground falling away beneath your feet, and then you come out here, you know, t- to make it big as a screenwriter generationally like you and I you know we're old enough to sort of remember when things were a different way but the entire time we've been working there's been a an avalanche happening underneath us and then the generation of people I think who are younger than us they're just kind of like buried in the rubble (laughs) or they were just they've never known a time that was different you know what I'm saying like it's completely different but like we I don't know. That's the Generation X thing. You sort of knew how it was in an analog world, and then everything switched and fractalized and fragmented, and now we're trying to sort it all out. It's it's very. I I feel exactly the same way. It's very hard to for me to judge and 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 feel like am I am I just uh, like a crazy old man and I'm always comparing things to the way they used to be. Uh, I, I wish I had kind of a, a clean slate and was just kind of moving forward without always kind of comparing back to the things I love because it, it does feel like like the types of filmmakers I loved. I mean, just to start with the newspapers, like I started working in newspapers because authors I liked in their bios always said they worked at a newspaper somewhere. So it was it was already like an antiquated, like terrible career path move to even <laughs> think that that was like a good way forward because writers I was reading who were like, you know, from the 70s and 60s were working at newspapers as one of their first jobs. So in a way, <laughs> yeah, in, in a way it was like a, a career forged in anachronisms and things that were totally outdated. And it does feel like the moment I rolled into town in, in Hollywood, you know, those 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 stories that I would read about in high school, like Joe Esterhaus, like not that I wanted to be the next Joe 
Esther House, although that wouldn't be so bad, like selling that type of basic instinct uh, log line from a phone booth for $5 million, like that kind of world was already kind of falling apart even when I got here. And it has continued to. And, you know, I, I don't even know what people want out of the movies. I, I definitely don't think I have my finger on the pulse. I think that's one thing that really has changed. When I moved out here, I was like, yeah, I think I know what people want. I have no idea what people want. I know what I like, and that's about it. Well, but the thing is, is that we now live in a world where everybody can essentially have exactly what they want whenever they want it. So if you love boats... <laughs> I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like if you love like custom made canoes, there is a podcast for you and probably like a YouTube channel. And do you know what I'm saying? Like there's just no niche that has not been filled. And so, you know, not everybody, we don't all eat from the same trough the way that we used to, if I could put it that way. And I don't think there's a single facet of American media or entertainment that hasn't gone through a cataclysm. I, I feel like maybe publishing went first because there was the move to the screen. You know what I'm saying? Like it happened actually a long time ago where writers who were writing on, you know, for the page had to deal with the advent of television and everybody going to the movies and all the money kind of flowing in that direction. But you know, you could see it coming. The music business fragmented, and then now you have the streamers and movies and kind of the the falling away of the theatrical experience, especially with COVID and, you know, even, even cable television and traditional news media. Like, getting an audience is really hard. <laughs> and the kinds of, and the sizes of the audience in terms of what we deem successful has scaled down dramatically. You know, you the... The one that comes most commonly to mind is like Johnny Carson back in the day of like, you know, three major networks on your television plus like the PBS channel or whatever it was, UHF. And, you know, he would get like what, like 100 million people tuning in. <laughs> and now it's like, you know, if you get 2 million people tuning in, you're like a hit, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I uh, spoke with my parents a couple of days ago and they're always asking what I'm watching. And I'm like, oh, I'm watching a Squid Game. You might like it. It's the biggest you know, show that's ever been on Netflix. And my dad's like, uh, oh, I'm watching this show. Uh, I think everybody's watching. It's really hot right now. I, he tells me the name. I've never heard of it. I'm like, well, does mom like it? And he's like, no, she's watching another show in the bedroom on Netflix. Yeah. So she's watching Chestnut Man. My dad's watching. I think it's called Seven Seconds. I'm watching Squid Game. None of us have ever heard of the other show everyone's watching. Um, and they're all three are still on Netflix. So we, we, we couldn't be more kind of, uh, in our own little pop culture bubbles, which is a, which is a bummer because I remember going to school as a kid and like everyone had watched last night's A-Team. Everyone had watched last night's Miami Vice. Um, and it was, uh, you know, it was fun water bubbler talk. I know that we had water bubblers in middle school, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I think like the, the, the challenge that I think you're describing is, and I talk about that, you know, I talk about this somewhat frequently because I think it's a function of my age, but also a function of like where the culture is and how fast it's moving is that, uh, it's trying to navigate whether or not the change is positive. I think the, the downer is that we often conflate something being financially successful with it being like good. <laughs> And I don't know if that's necessarily the case, you know, like is, is the fact that like reality TV and these like terrible, like dating shows, they get great ratings. So that means they're good. I think in our culture, 
a lot of times, especially Hollywood culture, it's like if it gets the ratings and it gets the money, it's good. And if it doesn't, it's bad. And, you know, the streamers, they're making money. They're making billions and billions of billions of dollars. If that means the death of movie theaters, so what? Streamers are good now. And I, I don't feel the same. I think the loss of the theatrical experience, just as like a common example, is a, is a super negative thing. Yeah, I keep hoping the pendulum is going to somehow swing the other way. Like, like maybe this feel is going to be like the '60s, where movies were out, and like you were saying, TV was in, but then there were these new, new wave of vanguard filmmakers, and all of a sudden, movies were interesting and hip again. I don't know. I, I'm probably fooling myself. Um, but it is it is a real bummer because movies and theatrical movies, especially like if they don't make the money the first weekend, they're they're done. Whereas, you know, years ago, they used to hang around in theaters and get three, four, five, six week runs. So you you actually had a chance to discover them. Um, but maybe maybe streaming wise. I mean, there's there's so much out there, I guess. Good word of mouth on Twitter and social media can kind of take something that's uh relatively in the in the dustbin on streaming and and uh make it cool again i guess although i don't know how that happens i, I would like to know the recipe for that but it, it feels like it it does happen i think the healthiest attitude and i forget who it was maybe it was like helen mirren it was some act i think it was an actress and it was somebody we would all know i can't remember exactly but basically she was just like well you know that was asked about this kind of thing, like the, the move into streaming and the big changes that she had witnessed in her career in the movie business. And she's like, ah, you can't resist change. I'm just going to roll with it. If, you know, if, if most people see me on their phones now, instead of on the big screen, so be it. I just want to work. And I was like, damn, that's like a, that's like a, what do you call it? Yield to overcome. That's some, All right. I don't know. I'm going to put that on a post-it, put it over my desk. <laughs> but I, I still found myself going, oh, that's so fucking sad. You're such a good actress. And now everybody's on their fucking phone watching you instead of like going into a theater and being in that dark room and the big screen. It's just, it feels like a loss to me. Maybe I'm just a curmudgeon, but it feels like a loss to me. Helen Mirren doesn't sweat the small stuff. That's why she looks great. <laughs> that's right. She's still working. She's fantastic. She's like, what? I don't even know how old she is. She's timeless. So, yeah, so there you are. And yet you've, you know, you've managed to fight your way through and to deal with whatever changes have come along. And, you know, for all of us or for all of our kind of curmudgeonly mourning, there remains a lot of movies being made, maybe more than ever, just because there's such a huge appetite at all these different platforms for content. There's a lot of television shows being made, God knows. I, you know, I think there's been a lot of publicity given to the kind of storytelling that the quote unquote golden age of television has allowed for, which is more novelistic and complex. And, you know, it's not like the, what do you call it? The multi-camera um, sitcoms of yore. You know what I'm saying? This is a lot more sophisticated in terms of its storytelling, a lot more creative freedom and authority given to the writer, theoretically. So there are some positives as well. And you've been in the mix there. Uh, you know, I know you worked on Marin's show and then you worked on Blunt Talk, right? I've, I've been in the mix. I'm just barely, barely hanging on. <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah, I, I would complain less if I was like, you know, Helen Mirren and I was totally killing it out there. But yeah, no, I'm, I'm hanging on. It, there are so many, <laughs> so many venues. I get a, a text from a, a friend from high school that I haven't seen in 20 years. Maybe every couple months he'll text me and he'll be like, uh, Hey, you should sell a show to Hulu. 
or hey, you should sell a show to Netflix. They'll send me some <laughs> article. Like they're by, there's so many uh, venues to sell out there. It, you know, just makes me feel like a real piece of crap. I'm like, yeah, I'm I'm out there. I'm I'm pitching, man. I'm I'm you know, there are a lot of venues, but uh, that doesn't necessarily mean there's a lot more places that uh, I'm selling or that are hiring me. Well, it's also so, so competitive. It's daunting. Everybody in this town practically wants to sell a show to Hulu or Netflix or HBO Max, right? Especially everybody of a certain persuasion, like people who yeah. like to read literary fiction and want to make like a cool, a quote unquote, cool show. It's Netflix, it's Hulu, it's HBO Max, maybe Showtime. What am I missing? Well, I'd say stars, but you know what? Forget stars because I worked at stars. They don't even have our show up on uh, up on their app anymore. I mean, you know, so the, I don't know. I can feel very suffocated and overwhelmed by how many people are trying to make content and to make a career making content in this town. And you go into like, like the, the going out and trying to sell something process, at least from my perspective, is hellish. Uh, I did not enjoy it there was a relentlessness to it, the constant going out and pitching and having these like really positive meetings. And then you like never hear from somebody again. <laughs> like I can't overemphasize how fun the meetings can be. And the person's like, I fucking love you. I love your voice. You know, like we're going to do great things together. Never hear from them again. It's just such bullshit. Uh, it's uh it's a little bit of a nightmare. I, I have to say a, l a lot of writers I know, enjoy pitching over zoom since the pandemic and and they you know they can have their notes up and it doesn't have to be memorized obviously you don't have to drive across town uh and i like those things but for me it's it's already stressful and hard to kind of gauge how the other person is feeling I, over zoom i just find it impossible so i i've been having so many meetings that i'm i feel like the meeting ends and i am like wow i just nailed it <laughs> and I talk to, you know, my, my team, which is one person. And I'm like, yeah, they, they basically bought it in the zoom. So you just call up and, you know, get the checks coming my way. And it is, they are not interested. I had someone, a producer tell me, she was like, this is the best time I've had the whole pandemic it was over the <laughs> zoom on this pitch. I mean, why say that? That's the thing. I don't know. There's so much insincerity. Like I would much prefer if they were just like, stop you in the middle and just be like, nah, this isn't going to work. Almost like uh, casting, you know, the, the infamous, like, casting process where actors go into audition and they like do like two lines and they're like, thank you. And they're like, yeah. they're like I wish it was like that. Just, just kick me out. If, if you know, it's not going to be a yes. Like, I don't want to deal with all this. Uh, I love your voice bullshit. It's just too much. Yeah. It's the worst. Although I, I, you know, I, I do, in, I do enjoy pitching. I feel like it's sometimes a nice muscle to, uh, Flex after, you know, writing all day, being home all day, being alone all day. There's, you know, there is something I like about the pitching process, but certainly if you're not selling anything and I'm getting turned down left and right, it's, it's a, a real, a real drag. And it's, but, it's, but you know, it should, I should say having just gone through a sales process in, in publishing for, you know, lots of rejection. It's just the name of the game when you are a writer creator, because there are limited spots at the table and there are a lot of people trying to do it. So there, there does need to be like a tip of the cap made, I think in the direction of the gatekeepers in the sense that they are just deluged. I mean, how many of those pitch meetings do they go through in a day? How many people are trying to knock on their door and get their show made 
and they have to make decisions and quick turnaround. Like that's got to be a pain in the ass too. The whole, it just seems like the system is fucked up. <laughs> like, is this uh, the best we can do? Is this the best way think- to do it? Yeah, it's a, it's a very messed up system, but I'm not going to give them a tip of the hat. They are getting paid. That's what I always think about when I'm like in the meeting. I was like, ah, well, they're at least they're on the clock and getting paid for this. I'm just right, you know, free floating through space and then uh, driving 45 minutes back to my hovel, waiting for a week because someone told me that that was the the best time they've had the whole pandemic was my pitch. <laughs> You're still bitter. <laughs> I'm still bitter. There was another there was another one I had recently, uh, and uh, I it was a producer and I. I I was like, oh, I, I think we've met at a party. Uh, so I was like, I was like, you know, ready for a ready for what they call a warm room in terms of pitching her. So I'm pitching her and four other producers. She has her camera off because she's really busy and she's walking her dog. So I'm pitching basically to a black screen and I'm too embarrassed to even say, I think we might know each other a little bit because either they don't remember me or they just don't care. And yeah, pitching pitching to the dark is not the best. And I like the term sell it in the Zoom because the, there is the older term, which is sell it in the room. So sell oh, it. Yeah, that was a little riff on that. Yeah. I, I can guarantee that's not original. I was going to say, is that like, but I feel like that's got to now be a thing. Like he sold, yeah, sold a, it in the Zoom. That's a thing. Selling it in the Zoom. <laughs> I got to say, I would prefer to to do Zoom pitches. I hope that continues should I ever be back out pitching. But I, I, think, uh, it's, I think it's going to. It feels like, uh, feel, it feels like we're never going back. Yeah, but who knows? I, I think that's the case, but who knows? Let's give it a couple of years. But um, you then what? You're you're writing spec scripts. You oh. like try like take us through Duncan Birmingham's career, like post queer as folk. Like you have your spec script, you think it's going to be your breakthrough. It's not. Yeah, I had a yeah, I had a. I met my agents uh, when I was working at, at Queers Folks. I was kind of the gatekeeper for other writers. I found someone. We, I was taking lots of, lots of general meetings. I eventually got a job writing a script for a couple of directors. I had already kind of sold the concept at Universal Studios, and it was a baseball kind of romantic comedy. And I flew to Iowa to do some research. I was, there was no, no way in my mind that this movie wasn't getting made. Like this was going to be a summer release for the next year. Of course, that that movie didn't happen, and that was one of many many movies that didn't happen. Did, but, wait, did did you fly to Iowa on their dime? I flew to Iowa on their dime. Okay, I good. was so afraid to spend any money there. I mean, I was I, you know, this was not a, a luxurious trip to Iowa. This was uh, <laughs> yeah, this was very bare bare bones. I should have set the movie in Hawaii or someplace else. Not that Iowa wasn't lovely, but. Um, yeah, so worked worked in the movie business, kind of just uh, very scraping by, selling some scripts. Some some were originals that I wrote on spec, and then a couple were assignments that I pitched on and got the job writing them. Either way, the 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 end result was always the same. The movie didn't get made, and there was one that was a uh, going to be a Zach Braff movie. It would be in the trades. He was going to direct it, and there were always these new cool actor attachments. And I was like, wow, even for this like the big sale, like I'm basically just pushed to the side. It's now a Zach Braff movie and I'm never going to meet any of these actors or be involved if they even make it, which they didn't. So it, I, I kind of got the idea to move into TV a little, just a, a little slightly before the the big rush to TV. So that was a good idea. Wrote some sitcom pilots that didn't go anywhere. Got very lucky being in the right 
uh, like you said, the right place at the right time with some producers that were looking to make a show with Mark Marin, and I couldn't have been more excited. I was like, I would love to, I would love to work on that, thinking I would never get the job because what writer wouldn't want to work with, you know, work with Mark Marin, and got very lucky in that we, you know, we got along. And um, I always say this, but it was, it was kind of like writing fan fiction because I listened to the podcast. The the you know there's if you listen to the podcast it's it's the idea for the show is is just so crystal clear this guy who who lives in his house at at the time on the kind of fringe of Hollywood and has people over to do the podcast in his garage and maybe they're having a conversation that's sort of thematic to the plot or maybe they're coming over and they're kind of they're the plot generator you know getting him jealous of something or or you know saying something that kind of spins him out of control and marks such a great character because there's there's he can go you know order an espresso at a coffee bar and get into conflict with someone. So that was really, really fun to work on. And then I, I know you've had Jonathan Ames on the show and and working on Blunt Talk was really great. So I've, I worked on some some shows that were really, uh, uh, really awesome, really a lot of fun that I'm very proud of. And, and good collaborators like Jonathan yeah. and Mark are smart guys and like so smart. Yeah. So it's like and, and it's and it's like work that I think aspires to something. It's not like hacky run-of-the-mill television do you know what i'm saying like there's it's, it has like artistic aspirations if i can put it that way totally those those are two people who uh you know they don't both those people have great taste so it, it was really it's really fun to work with someone and you know they're the boss and you're trying to hit like a target that uh you know you you know you're on the same page about i, I would like to think i have good taste so so they have a, a good uh a good nose for for what's good and what's bad nothing is worse you can work with the nicest person in the world but if you don't love their taste you know it's it's going to be a, a a hard tug of war and especially if they're the boss they're going to win it so yeah it's it's uh it's great to work with people who have which what I perceive is really great taste and are like, very smart. Yeah, like a shared sensibility. So you talked about like right place, right time, or like you have agents who knew the producers who wanted to do the Marin show. And so it was just like you were there. They put you in touch. But just so people listening, you know, people who might be curious about, you know, a career in Hollywood television writing, like what happens? Like they, the producer, you know, your agent introduces you to the producers they vet you like how does it go and then do you have to talk to mark to get his sign off or what yeah i mean it's, it was all about mark i mean this one was a little different in that i i was in the producer's office and i was uh you know just like you would see in like the player or any hollywood movie i'm pitching them a tv show they pass on the tv show and then and then they say something uh you know like we like your voice and i'm you know mentally being like all right well this meeting's going down in flames but they had something for me. And usually when a producer has something for me uh, at my level, it's usually, you know, a book that uh, has been kicking around that nobody's interested in or it's usually not something great. So so there's something. Wait, wait, wait. You mean like adapting the book for them? Yeah, adapting the book or a piece of, as they say, IP. You know, they want a writer to to, to pitch on. You know, it's it's usually some wild goose chase. Right. Uh, if I've they been have there. something. I've yeah, been I mean, there. Not, not always. Was, I mean, that's been part of my bread and butter is getting those assignments, but a lot of times, so they had already, they were already the producers in, in bed with Mark Marin, uh, wanted to do something with him. And they were putting up a little bit of money to shoot a pilot presentation, which was very rare. I'd never, I was like, oh, wow. So we're going to, you're going to hire someone to write something and you're going to shoot it no matter what, just to, just to have something to shop around town. So that was really exciting to me. And, uh, yeah, I had to be vetted by Mark obviously, and went over and met him and was a little, uh, 
was a little nervous and uh, but we got along and and uh, just felt like we had a, a lot in common. I listened to his podcast, I think a few days later. And he talked about how he had a writer come over to the house to talk about a, doing a TV show. And uh, his uh, his dick was hanging out of his Howlin' Wolf pajama pants. And uh, <laughs> Wait, he and, has uh, Howlin' Wolf pajama pants? I didn't I didn't clock the 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 dick or the pajama, the Howlin' Wolf pajama pants. I do remember being dressed a little casually, but we were at word his house. So then I, you know, texted him. I was like, oh, just to let you know, you know, didn't see your you know, didn't see your dick. <laughs> but it was fun to hear my say. It was fun to be part of as a fan of the podcast it was fun to hear, you know, me being part of his life on the podcast. I don't think he mentioned me by name. But anyway, so so that was a little unusual in that, you know, when I got the quote unquote job, it was it, we were actually, you know, working together to write something to, to film, uh, you know, a few months later, this little pilot presentation that was a, a taste of the show. And and uh, and even if the show hadn't sold, I would have I would have had this this cool like pilot in my back pocket that we had shot. So that was that was a lot of fun. Yeah. And like not the typical course. They usually don't spend money on something unless they feel like it's going to go right. Right, right. That no, this producer was really putting. This was uh, Dennis Leary's production company, and they were putting their money where their mouth was. And um, it, it just seemed like such a no-brainer for a show. And uh, yeah, and it was great. It was great. So, you're the producer on that show, or one of the producers? I, I'm, or I'm one of the producers. Yeah, and I got to go kind of uh, catapult. I mean, the last time I'd been in a writer's room had been as a writer's assistant on Queer as Folk. You know, then I'd gone off and, and done movies for eight years or whatever, but not hadn't gotten any made. So I that was a very different path than most people. And then I was the executive producer on that show because I had worked and written the pilot presentation with Mark. Got it. And so then it was a, a whole new world. Yeah. And then you you parlay that because I want to get to the book, obviously, but I do think this is germane because you know, this has been, this has been your course, right? You go from there to writing on Blunt Talk, which is the Jonathan Ames show on stars, like writer producer or like in the room, like how same thing, writer producer. Yeah. We had a great writer's room, you know, Jonathan's Jonathan's the captain of the ship and uh, he had sold the show with Patrick Stewart. They picked it up for two seasons the, you know, when he brought myself and, uh, you know, uh, whatever it was four other writers on and, um, yeah. How did you How a, did you get the job? You interview with him, and he says, that was, "Yeah, that was an interview. We we had a drink at the also a little unusual to meet someone for a, a lot more fun than going to a meeting in an office. But we met for a drink at the Tower Bar. I was a fan of his books and a fan of his, and I, it was just it was I was like, oh, this would be really cool. I get to work with someone who's a a a a you know a prose writer." And uh, a person that I, you know, know of this like this like kind of New York writer is now going to move to L.A. and he's going to show run the show. I, I it just uh, it, it it was really uh, I was very excited that uh, he felt like we clicked. And then immediately he hired me. And I remember I picked him up. He had just moved to L.A. I picked him up in Los Feliz and we did a tour uh, of L.A. Um, just kind of looking around for what might be fun places to film at. We went to, you know, Musso and Frank's and the the uh, Marlowe House from Long Goodbye and uh, downtown uh, Grand Central Market and the Ray and the, uh, you know, the Bradbury building, just just driving around kind of just like I was giving him a little tour of L.A. And that was kind of when I realized for 10 years, I felt like a, a newbie in L.A. And then all of a sudden I went from newbie in L.A. to like grizzled old vet. 
Right. There was like no in between because I realized of the other writers in the room, I was like, oh, I guess I've lived here the longest. And uh, yeah, why wouldn't I give a, a tour, my tour of L.A. to someone? Yeah, I don't know what the what is the you know, when do you tip into being a grizzled veteran? I don't know if it's like 10 years or 15 or whatever it is. But I that's... mean, it would have been nice to have some middle ground once you're constantly complaining and, and bitching about like how this coffee shop used to be this and that used to be that. Yeah, I guess you become the grizzled old vet. There's a great story in your book called Good in a Room. I think that's the one. Yes. Yeah. Which is kind of about a grizzled old vet and about the a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about. These sort of sea, you know, the sort of sea change that the movie business has undergone in our lifetimes uh, and just in our time living in Los Angeles. What, what year did you move here? What would that? Be? I moved here in in 2000. Okay, I think I moved here in 2000 as well or 2001 so i mean weird we're on similar okay, similar us. tracks and a lot has changed and in this story there's like the older staff writer i think is it bruce and he's he's in a room and he's lamenting all these changes and then there's this young writer's assistant named xander <laughs> who i think embodies to him like his his lost youth you know what i'm saying like he's not a young guy anymore and he's feel he's trying to kind of hang on and make sure he's relevant and all this stuff. And he kind of resents this young guy's youth and his energy and just the way that things have changed. I thought it captured something very true about life in general. And I think about life in Hollywood in particular. Oh, thanks. Why? Well, I, I appreciate that. Yeah, that one was a lot of fun to write. I feel like I've been I've, I've never been as hip as Xander, but I feel like I've been the young guy in the room. I've definitely uh, am, am now kind of tending Moving towards more of the the old guy in the room, not not quite as old as the protagonist of the story, who's really from like another age. You know, he he comes out of that uh, three camera sitcom world, but I I feel like I know those guys, and I'm you know I'm not they're not that much older, and they've just even you know really seen the 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 business change. And and I guess the the, the seed of the story was kind of like, or the idea for it was kind of how. Uh, you know, everyone has their down days and how, how kind of surreal and weird it can be. I wouldn't say tough, but surreal to, to go into a comedy room and your job is pitching jokes when you're super down on your luck and depressed, which this guy is because he's still reeling from his wife leaving and, and how, uh, how, how, how tough it is to kind of mask that. Right, right, right. So you're doing all this work in Hollywood and you also love fiction, as you said, from the jump. Like, you know, this has been an interest of yours for a long time as well. So as you were writing screenplays and working on shows and pitching all around town, were you also working on stories or working on a novel? I was, especially when I first got here. The idea was, oh, I'm going to work in Hollywood and then I'll work on my fiction on the side. And I was, I was very... These were these were very different days. I was where I could like write late into the night, set my alarm, get up early, write then. I was I was I cranked out a novel that was like my, you know, my Hollywood novel. The the twist on it was, if it is if you would call it a twist, was that it just felt like in, in most of the Hollywood stories, the, the screenwriter is usually a little bit of an innocent. In this, the writer was uh almost more sour and, uh, you know, toxic than, than any of the producers or any other people he came into contact with. So, you know, I had an agent for that, shopped it around. I thought we got close, but it never sold. And obviously that was disappointing. If I thought the novel was like uh, amazing, I would, you know, I don't know, 
publish it or put it online myself. But so that was like my early 30s. And then uh, and then just always kept writing stories because I just wanted to have something to send out to lit mags, which I've done since I was, you know, 18 or 19. And maybe in the past four or five years, um, kind of picked up the pace with sending out to lit mags and all of a sudden got to this point where I was like, all right, I feel like there's a kind of enough stories here that feel a little bit, you know, thematically in the same world where this might somehow be, uh, some kind of collection that, uh, you know, six people might be interested in yeah, or more. I mean, I think, it's more. An, I think it's an excellent collection and I, I want to try to characterize it for listeners and feel free to add or subtract or correct me if I'm wrong, but sure. th- there's definitely like a, a Hollywood theme running through a lot of the stories, though not all of them. There's definitely a noirish feel uh, to some of them or, or many of them. There's some surrealism or magical realism. I never know how to characterize these things, but I'm, you know, I'm the same. At, at times in certain stories, things get trippy. And then substance abuse is another thing that I noticed in a lot of the stories. Bad relationships or dysfunctional relationships, uh, particularly between men and women. And then I also could not but help but notice that rodents appear in multiple stories. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Okay. I, I don't know if you I don't know if you were on top of this, but I was like, wow, what, what's he trying to tell me with these rats and mice everywhere? Uh, well, I, I don't I don't want to. You know, there's uh, there's a. Um... Yeah, there's a lot there with the rodents that was all planned out and it's very <laughs> thematic. So I, I won't spoil it for readers. But I, I no, I like I like your characterization of uh, of the different strands of the book. I like that a lot. Okay, so here's here's what I was wondering as I was reading, knowing what I know about you and knowing what I know about your career, is I'm wondering if these stories were written out of frustration with Hollywood or if any of them were written, like I could imagine how you could be pitching or working in a room where you're not the guy who gets the final say on what goes into the script or what gets to the screen. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. This is a place where you could have full control. This could also be, and again, I guess I'm asking like, is fiction a place where sometimes like you might be thinking of a screenplay idea or a a television series idea and then you realize it's not working there and I, you want to try it in fiction. Do, do you see what I'm saying? Like, what's the relationship between the work that you do for the screen, both formally and also, you know, just at home when you're noodling? And when do you decide that, okay, this is something that I'm going to try to turn into literature? Yeah, I, I really feel like, you know, most of these ideas are, are probably things that are, are ideas that I just couldn't let go that felt like they were, in, in, at least for me, good ideas, something that I would want to read, but maybe, you know, I, I didn't put them in, I didn't put them in my file for uh, a, a novel work in progress. They didn't feel like they were big enough for a screenplay, but there, there was something there. And I feel like there's at least, a, it seems like part of the question is like, you know, what's the impetus for writing these stories for for me there's just a gratification there uh like you said where i'm not working for someone there isn't uh so much a me trying to write uh to necessarily sell something or be commercial so i get to write something 
I get to finish it in a certain amount of time. And at least there's some gratification. You know, it only takes one other person to read a story. So, you know, the moment I'm finishing these, I'm sending them out to some lit mag, hoping someone's going to read it and connect with it. If some, if one person reads it and, you know, it, it feels like a little bit of a win or I've, I've, I've completed something, you know, a, a screenplay or a, a TV pilot, even if you, you write it, you know, you might give it to a couple friends. They like it. If nothing happens with it, it really feels it. it the, the the gratification is very delayed if there is any at all. So, you know, these ideas for me felt like I was like, I, I think these are good ideas and they feel like fun narratives. And I I want to do something with them. And they kind of, you know, were kind of a little burning a hole in my side of my head for a little bit. And I didn't know what else to to do with them. But, but there, I love, I mean, I love short stories. I read tons of collections. I hope that answers the question. It does. And I'm, I'm on board with all of it. The only place that I would push back is where, uh, you said that you felt like a lot of these, like, you know, it wasn't enough for a screenplay. And I can understand assessing like the individual stories and being like, well, this isn't going to be a feature, but I could feel in a lot of these stories, the, potential to extrapolate you know what i'm saying not that not that you would you know uh, adapt the story one for one as a feature or as like a television series but that it could be a very interesting starting point or like a world that you would want to inhabit and then build out there's some potential in many of these i feel like and there's a very cinematic quality to the writing you know it's very visual and easy to kind of you know, I never felt disoriented in space or anything. And the, the dialogue is there and funny. And I don't know, I could see how it's very obvious to me that you're somebody who has experience writing screenplays as well. So I don't know. Brad, I just get I just get very excited. I thought you were going to buy one of these in the Zoom. I was like, is there a checkbook coming out? <laughs> I actually want to option several of your stories that I have sitting slightly off screen uh, to my right here. Uh, several actors who would I love... Would, uh... <laughs> I, I would agree with that. I, I, I don't want to make it sound like these are ideas that I was trying to drop into the screenplay or novel bucket. And since they, they didn't feel like they had legs enough, so I wrote them as stories. They just felt like they would work best as stories. And, you know, I, I, and I should actually say a lot of these felt like I was and this is just how I write stories. I'm like starting them I'm like, oh, is this, is, you know, certainly good in a room. Is there a novel here? Is there a bigger, you know, story here, but then I kind of get eight or nine pages in. And I feel like, all right, you know what? This this feels like uh, I, I can wrap this up now and be very very happy with it. And maybe you know I'll return to it and make it bigger someday. But I'm, I I kind of feel like that's the nice thing about writing stories and why it's the most fun thing for me to write. I get the most enjoyment out of it than anything. Is you know I'm not trying to hit ten pages, twenty pages. I'm I'm writing until I kind of feel like I'm either running out of gas or this is a good place to end it or I'm gonna you know put a pin in it and return to it later and make it bigger. So I feel like those all all the stories kind of. Um, maybe not not all of them even started as stories you know they might have started as longer works that then i kind of uh felt like i i I had i had said what i wanted to say and certain stories like exterminator there there is a screenplay version of exterminator i have i have a short film called exterminator but it started as a a short story and the um the foodie detective was actually a actually started developing that as a tv show didn't really get much traction with it. So uh, yeah, I put made that into a story and might return to it as a show at, at some point. I have to ask about the foodie detective. And just so people listening know, it's like a, this guy is like a, a food writer in Los Angeles. And 
gets asked to sort of investigate whether or not there are, are like illegal pop-up restaurants restaurants uh, in the city that are serving illicit animal dishes. Is that a, is that a fair characterization? Yeah, very nicely done. <laughs> is that I kept thinking of Jonathan Gold, the late Jonathan Gold, as I was reading it. Was that is there an homage in there? Is that correct? I, I think there is. I, I, or there, or there definitely is. There is a, I feel like a, a huge um, dovetailing between the world of food writing and noir. I mean, you know, Anthony Bourdain, you know, writes detective fiction. Something about Jonathan Gold driving around in his truck at all hours of the night, you know, looking for for these uh, these dishes to write about that nobody else has kind of uh, put on the map yet feels almost like a detective cracking case. And in fact, I should have started with this. I met Jonathan Gold once and I think he even used that term detective. I know he did at one point when I was asking him about reviewing restaurants and he was talking about, you know, he, he might have the meal, but then he also goes to like the farmer's markets nearby to try and find out, you know, what ingredients they're using. You know, he's having the meal and then he's kind of deconstructing it to uh, to figure out, you know, what's in there and it's it's it just felt like there was a, a big crossover. I mean, even watching Anthony Bourdain's show, you know, he'll often do episodes that kind of have a little bit of a, a noir flavor. Sure. Um, so there's there's a little bit of Bourdain. There's a little bit of uh, of gold uh, very much in that story. And I'm such a huge fan of both. Yeah. It's, yeah. That's I never had thought about it that way. You know, this kind of dovetailing between noir and food writing or food media, whatever you want to call it. But I have recently had the thought. When trying to uh, assess the current landscape and figure out like how people find an audience, it do- has occurred to me that if you write about sex and you write about or and or you write about food, there seems to be like a bottomless appetite for that kind of content. People love to read books that have something to do with food and sex, <laughs> and they love to watch shows that are filled with like romantic longing, sex food like what was i watching recently that had great chocolate I, yeah, I was i was actually watching chocolate for the 17th time and uh <laughs> but i don't know man i like again this is just me armchair quarterbacking and like trying to figure out like what do people want and it's no, seemed... I, I completely agree. There, f- food is – I've been trying to crack the food, what I think is the food narrative for a long time. I, there was a – I had sold a show to AMC years ago called Foodies that was uh, – you know, I ended up writing it for them and it just never made it – you know, never made it to pilot. I used to have a food group where uh, we were called the Culinaires and uh, this is in real life and we all have food exploratory pun nicknames. I'm Marco Pollo. There's – Veal Armstrong, uh, Beef Erickson, <laughs> Prons de Leon, and we would go out and do these kind of homage to Jonathan Gold type evenings of of uh, off the radar, you know, culinary experiences and lots of a boozing. And at one point, we were, you know, being courted to do a, a reality show. I, I just think there's something very adventurous uh, about, uh, you know, about food, about dining. Are you a, so? You're a foodie. Would you? Uh, I, 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 I want to say that, but then if you ate dinner with me, you'd be like, geez, this guy just eats anything. Like I'm not, I'm, I'm almost not really picky enough to be a foodie, but, um, yeah, I enjoy food. Yeah. I like food. I mean, everybody likes food. That's yeah. the whole point. And like, <laughs> I think about Anthony Bourdain's career and how successful he was and beloved. I mean, a lot of it had to do with his character and personality and charisma and everything, but 
just this idea, and it's not, you know, he's not the only one. There's like Emeril Agassi, who I want to say at, at some point, and it may still be the case, was like the most valuable client of CAA, like was worth the most oh, wow. money. Something like that. You Believe know what I'm saying? Like, the amount of money and interest there is in food content is extraordinary. I and, mean, the wish fulfillment of Anthony Bourdain of watching that show and it just it, the ultimate dream career of traveling around and trying these foods and every show is an adventure. And also Anthony Bourdain's in great shape, which I think we don't talk about enough as part of the appeal of, of you're like, oh, can I just like stuff my face and drink and I'm, I'm looking great. I know he was into like martial arts and stuff. I used to joke that like the, the secret was that he was actually vegan and, uh, it, you know, he only like pretended to eat meat on camera. I had this whole conspiracy theory concocted because he was so skinny and he was clearly like, you know, he would eat on the camera, but that dude was not eating a lot of carbs off. Yeah, agreed, agreed. No way. There's no way. But he was also, I think, blessed genetically. He's one of these like tall, skinny people with a high metabolism. You know, he's just, just kind of the way that he was wired. But yeah, I don't know, man. I think uh, if that's something you're genuinely interested in or if you can find ways to weave it in, but what I'm talking about is trying to write to market, which I think is a fool's errand. And, you know, you can't shoehorn food and sex into your book if it's not what you're really built to write about. It's just trying to figure out, like, what's going to sell. And here you are telling me that you've gone out and pitched foodie shows all over the place and it hasn't panned out. So, I mean, you know, who knows? What? Well, there was a there was a little panning. It panned out for a little bit, which is all I need. I don't need to pan for gold. I'll, I'll pan for you know silver. Yeah, so you got paid for that AMC. I got thing. paid. Okay, got paid. well that's good. Uh, but I, I very much had that thought. The foodie detective was one that maybe even more so than any of the other stories. I was like, oh, there's a novel in here. I just I still haven't been able to crack what what that case is without making it be like, I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm not that interested in writing about food but I, I did feel like the way you said food and sex i was like food and noir uh, i was like I'm, i feel like i'm on to something here yeah i like this image of like a jonathan gold or an anthony bourdain like driving around at night in the dark like looking for something like in a strip mall <laughs> uh i have a i have the funny story a guy i used to work with at a day job like we used to have lunch sometimes and uh I think we w always went to the same place. We were in a shitty part of Hollywood, so there wasn't even that good of options. You know what I'm saying? It was always like these terrible restaurants nearby that we would go to. And uh, I was finally like got on Google one day, and I was like, what would Anthony Bourdain eat? You know, I was like, I don't know why. But there, he was like, you got to eat at this place called like Sap Coffee Shop and Thai. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I was like, really? okay, so we're going to go. And like, I don't want to rain on anybody's parade. Listen, I, if you like Sap Coffee Shop, God bless you. But like, we went in there. I was like, this is the most disgusting fucking lunch I've ever had in my life. And uh, every time I go by it, I laugh because my buddy kind of was like, all right, whatever you say, man, we'll try it. And like, he and I are just like sitting there in this like fluorescently lit, like very gritty, very like very authentic. But I was like, this is not. The food isn't any good. I, I didn't, maybe, I don't know. I'm a vegetarian. Maybe I needed to be like Bourdain and like order the, you know, the uh, liver well, of the whatever. Well, there's, you got to really be in that board. I, I have had that experience going to some Bourdain restaurants. In fact, I feel like I used to like pick a, or, or sorry, gold restaurants. I used to pick a gold restaurant for like dates. And then I realized this is not, this might, it's good for your, uh, in a lot of cases, your wallet, not the, the greatest, yeah, place to, 
you know, take someone if you don't know them very well or if they're not like a Jonathan Gold fan already. But I do I have been to Sap. I feel like there was one dish, maybe it's like the 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 noodles, drunken noodles, and then there's like some kind of donut thing. See, I'm not a foodie because I should I should know the the proper term for whatever that uh that donut is they serve on the side. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, you gotta be in a gold state of mind for some of his more uh off the cuff spots. Yeah. Well I think if you do that for a living and your 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 palate is just like, you know, you're wide open. You'll basically eat anything, try anything. I feel like after a certain point, it's places like that that would probably appeal. You could eat at all these fine dining restaurants and, you know, all the hip like bistros and stuff like that. And after a while, they probably all blend together. And then you go to someplace like Sap and it actually stands out and feels like it's there's a human quality to it, I guess. But I've also heard that you know, chefs, even like even like gourmet chefs, you know, somebody uh, at one of these fancy restaurants, they go out after work to eat, and it's like they want comfort food. They love to go eat burgers and brisket and macaroni yeah. and cheese, and do you know what I'm saying? It's not, they don't go out to go get like the foie gras at like the at like the four star restaurant or whatever down the street. They're like going out for like they know where to get like the best like roast beef sandwich. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, know, that sort of stuff. That uh, makes sense. I, I, wherever chefs want to eat and also, uh, you know, wherever the cops are eating, uh, usually a good sign if there's a police car in the parking lot. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I, I haven't thought about that. I'm trying to think, trying to think of restaurants where I'm at least for, for diner, for diner food. I feel like, you know, cause they've, they've, they're working those beats in that neighborhood. They know what they want. Yeah, for sure. Well, there's, I will say this, Los Angeles has excellent food options. It's infinite. Like I, there's, I barely scratch the surface. But if you like to eat good food, it's not a bad place to be. It's the best. It's the best. It's hard to leave for uh, for that reason alone. Have you thought about getting out? I, I think about it all the time. But I, you know, like, are you are you a lifer here? You think? You know, I, I have thought about getting out, especially since the pandemic. I mean, I, I, I like L.A., you know, before, I, you know, I had one 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 really rough year the first year then it kind of felt like home to me. You know, like I said, then I became the grizzled vet. But I would say when I would think about maybe leaving, I'd always be like, well, this is where the work is. So why even think about it? I, I feel like um, I'm happy here. But now as you know, work has become, uh, getting these jobs in Hollywood has become a little more challenging. At the same time, it feels like you don't really have to even be here, especially when so much stuff is going on over Zoom. So so now that I have maybe a little freedom to not be here, yeah, I guess I, I have thought about getting out. I don't know. I don't know where I'd go. Yeah, me neither. Um, I know. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure. I, it, it does feel like, um, yeah, I've been here a while. I'd, I'd like to get out for a little bit. You know, see the world. <laughs> Travel, you know. Yeah. I, I feel like, well, since we both got here essentially at the same time, like whenever you decide to leave, let me know. I'll go wherever you go and I'll, we'll just continue yeah. on this parallel life course. <laughs> uh, that, I'll let you know where I'm going to go. I mean, I have a writer friend who's in Montana. I look at her Instagram. I'm like, oh, she got out. Like, what's uh, what's what's going on? I guess I should just visit there first. That might be a good starter. I don't have to get so dramatic and think I'm going to, you know pack my car and my dog and just drive there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you could test it out at like do test an Airbnb, like do like an Airbnb for a while. I mean, and I think there is something to changing it up. Like maybe the creative work, like I, uh, this is the way that I'll put it. I think if you're living here and every asshole at every coffee shop is trying to do what you're trying to do, <laughs> there could be a suffocating effect. Like, Oh my God, I feel like a sense of overwhelm 
not not from a competitive standpoint even necessarily, but just like it just makes me anxious. Like, oh, everyone's trying to do this and like beating on these same doors and Oh yeah. You know what I'm saying? Maybe oh, totally. Maybe... You go into the coffee shop and you see people writing and I'm like, look at this poor asshole. <laughs> and I'm I'm that poor asshole. So it, you know, it just feels like I was like, there's just we we there's no time, people. There's too many words. Yeah. But um yeah, no, I I, I feel that way too. Obviously, uh, you know, there's the, the the bubble situation. Yeah, it it would be nice. I'll, I'm gonna let you know. I'm gonna do some research to decide where we're gonna move next. Okay, good. We can talk. And I think uh Another like another aspect of this conversation, uh, like strategically, has to do with like how to be a creative person in, amid all this tumult and amid all this saturation. I think where I've landed is that you just have to keep making shit and do it because you love it and make the kind of stuff that you yourself would want to read or watch or listen to, like whatever you're doing. And what's the phrase? Content is king, right? So I think your decision to write these stories and publish this collection, it's, it's like a feather in your cap. You know what I'm saying? The more stuff you can, like good stuff that you can make, even if it doesn't amount to shit in the market scheme of things, at least you've left behind a body of work. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I would I would agree with that. I I do have to say in terms of getting discouraged because there's just so much out there. I do feel like the percentage of um, garbage to good stuff is kind of the same or maybe that's too hard. The the kind of the the percentage of stuff that's for me feels like it's the same. You know, the the the, whether it was, uh, you know, five years ago or today. There's still only like I'd say like a 15% of shows, books, more so books, but for shows, films that that I'm interested in that feels like it's like ooh that's that's gonna ring my bell out there. So it doesn't feel like I'm competing with with this vast landscape. I'm just competing with the you know the small slice of the pie that feels like it's kind of up my alley anyway. Yeah. Well, I was I'm now thinking of your Twitter. I think was it you? I was reading your Twitter not too terribly long ago, and you mentioned a streaming service that you think is superior to Netflix. Like when you talk about these ratios, I find... Oh, maybe was I talking about Canopy? Yes. And I looked at it, and I wanted to sign up for it, but my like library card had expired. I haven't been to the library in too long, but... I used to I have a I had a West that Hollywood shocking to me, but okay. Yeah, I was at I had a I had a library card, but I just hadn't been in a while, and I punched in my number or whatever, and it didn't because you register with Canopy through your library card. You do. It's it's really great. I mean, uh, I think there's a limit to the amount of movies you can stream a month, but I've never hit it. I mean, not like I'm on there all the time, but you know, they've got the newest indies and they have tons of classics. It's kind of like a cross between a I don't know Netflix and Criterion, it's a it's a great service. Yeah. Okay. So, so that's, I w- that's my hot tip. I know, but it's actually a good one because I find Netflix to be like over. Like I can't. I rarely can find something that I want. Sometimes I do. You know. Sometimes they have stuff on there. But like I would say, the ratio is like ninety five percent no to five percent yes. And maybe part of it is I just don't know what's what. It's hard to parse. But I don't feel like it's well curated. I guess is the point. Just feels uh, like a no. big shit pile. It's a, it's a real swamp. 
Yeah. 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 Canopy. Uh, check it out. I think you're going to like it. I, I'm not getting any kickback from this, from the library. Okay. Well, and I think, uh, I think maybe we've hit on something is that like maybe in this environment, curation is going to eventually become, maybe it already is super valuable. Like, you know, it's one thing to have all the content, but who has time to scroll and figure it out and I can't tell you how many times I've logged into Netflix at night in bed and fallen asleep whilst just flipping through options without ever having decided on anything. It's a lot. You've got to sit down and you've got to either you've got to have your like your top three or keep a list. I'm kind of on letterbox now for for movies. What wait? What is that? Oh, Letterbox. It's almost like uh, if you know Goodreads, it's like Goodreads, but for movies. I mean, I, you know, people use it for different things, but I, I just kind of bookmark what I want to watch on there. I think if you get on there, it also tells you like what streaming service it's on. But but yeah, the, the days of like sitting down and just like flipping channels when it's infinite amount of choices are over. And I feel the same way. By the time I start, sometimes if I don't know what I'm going to watch, I'll start a movie and I'm already exhausted within like 20 minutes. Or and, and one reason why another or I'd say another reason why I love the theatrical experience so much, you go there, you shut your phone off, your ass is in that seat. You already paid your money and you're just going to stick it out. Yeah. Whereas, you know, especially if you're watching something a little challenging uh, on your couch, you can just bail at any moment. Then you start watching something else. It's just it, it, it's it, it, it just um, it's just not particularly relaxing or rewarding. Um yeah. It's not the same. It's not as good. I Don't go, go to... away, movie theaters. No. I, yeah, I hope Tarantino we... keeps buying them up or I don't know what we have to do. I mean, Arclight's coming back, right? I would. I, is it? I don't know. I heard it was coming back. Good. Back. Somebody, I mean, there should be some rich person in Hollywood who's like, yeah, we got to make sure we save the Cinerama Dome. I mean, I mean in, like... a, in a movie town. Yeah. Yeah. My dog is scratching herself and knocking against the cabinet. Uh what are you doing now? Are you directing a film or did you just direct something? I, I directed the, my, my first film. It's a horror movie. It's called Who Invited Them. It is a very, very low budget movie. And it was it was a wild ride. We shot it in, in 12 days, overnight shoots. I've been trying to put a movie together for like five years. I've only been trying to put this movie together for a year, I think, because it had a little bit of a horror element and it was a you know a little bit of a genre movie we were able to find the funding before that i was trying to shop this dramedy around uh i don't want to get into the cast because we haven't made an announcement yet but yeah i will say it was it was a, a crazy crazy exhausting experience but also a really rewarding experience the cast was great the crew was great who who yeah. okay so let's i know i know you can't divulge certain details but for people listening who are like okay i want to make a movie how do you make a movie? Like, especially nowadays, and you know, it's low budget, but you got to get a cast. You're going to need some money. You need a crew, right? Like how many people are involved on set for like these 12 days? Like, was it a real production or was it more guerrilla than that? I mean, it was a, a real production just because I am a middle-aged man who works in the movie business and my friends are all in guilds and unions. So it's got to be while it's a very low budget movie, it's all, you know, above board. So I don't know what it would, I, I think if you are, you know, not in the movie business and you want to make a movie, go out and, and make one, you, you know, you can make one on your phone. I, I think the, the Duplass brothers are always kind of a good, a good model for how they started their career. And I guess, they're, you know, they're, they're still doing these kind of, uh, 
not totally, but these, these kind of small indie movies. Um, but at the same time, <laughs> the movie business, as we've been talking about, is kind of falling apart. I don't even know, you know, you, you go through film festivals and hope something gets noticed. It's funny when people used to ask me for advice about breaking into the business, I thought I used to have some really great advice. And now when people ask me, I am, I almost go blank because I'm not even sure what to say because the business has changed so much and I'm so far removed from breaking into the business. Things have, have changed so much that I, I don't even know what to say. I, I, here's, so, what I, here's what I would say. Yeah. What I think the thing to do is to just make stuff. Just keep making stuff <laughs> and own it. You know what I'm saying? Like it's yours, like as much as you can own it. I know sometimes you have to cut the pie up if somebody's financing it for you, but like, right? Like, uh, yeah, just yeah. start making shit and make as make the best shit you possibly can, and then try to you know sell it or get it noticed or put it out there and hope that an audience catches on. If it doesn't, keep making shit. Just keep going, and then eventually you'll have a body of work. Hopefully it's quality. So you have your name attached to it and it makes your name. And then one thing hits. I mean, I don't know what better to do, but at least you have some authority and some, uh, ownership. I, I think traditional modes, I don't know. I mean, it just feels like they've all flown out the window, right? I, I mean, nobody is, is yeah. Rushing to fund your movie. I would say for, for 99th, percent of most people, uh, especially if it's your first movie, I, I would try and make it yourself. I, I guess I, I, my advice usually is to make shorts. I've, I've been making shorts for 10 years. So I've made four, four or five shorts. I've helped countless friends make shorts. It felt like I was ready to graduate to the feature level. At least I thought so. So yeah, for people wanting to break in and uh, filmmaking is your passion, I would recommend strongly uh, making a short. Yeah. Just like test it out. It's cheaper. Test it out. What do you uh, What do you shoot on? You're obviously not shooting on film, I would bet, at for, on a 12 day shoot, or are you? Uh, we were not shooting on film. No, okay. this was this was digital. We had two cameras at an amazing uh, DP, and um, you know we had an editor who was there from the very beginning. So he's cutting the movie as we're as we're shooting the movie. And I had a, a producer who really you know believed with, believed in me and, and stuck it out you know from the beginning. Uh, believed in the story and, uh, and and really wanted to make something. I mean, it was it was a group of people who had all worked m real paying, lucrative jobs who had faith in the story and were nice enough to come on board and do this crazy two week film. Well, and uh, listen, style. if there's anything that has a chance of crushing it, like a low budget endeavor, you know, kind of rapid filmmaking and could then go on to potentially find a big audience. I feel like horror, I mean, at least in recent memory, there have been examples where that's happened. I think of like Blair Witch and I think of some of the stuff that, uh, what's the name of the guy who makes all the horror movies? Bloomhouse. You know what I'm saying? A lot yeah. of these, a lot of these films start off like being low budget, like not not name actors usually, um, you know, but if it's scary enough, people love them. I completely agree. And I'll just back up and say that, yeah, I, so I was trying to make a different movie that I will hopefully make at some point that was a dramedy. And in my mind, it shouldn't have, it wasn't a hard sell. I was like, well, I'll find funding. I had a great cast. I was like, I'll find funding for this because like we've been talking about when I moved to Hollywood, 
you know, kind of a romantic dramedy was was something that was very saleable. And I did sell some of them for, you know, a, a good good chunks of, of money. So the fact that like now I had my own script that I was shopping around, I was like, yeah, we'll, I'll find some money for this somewhere. It was very hard, very challenging. I could not get a dime from anyone just because the, the tone of the picture to me feels maybe 10 years ago would have been commercial. Now that kind of like human story, unless you're like Judd Apatow or someone, th those films are almost like art films. So uh, I think one reason I was able to find the the funding for this, uh, this movie that we just shot was, yeah, it did have one foot uh, in the, in the genre world, in this case, the horror world. So yeah, that's my other advice. Do the, do the short. And if you have an idea for a horror movie or a movie that, you know, is a, a genre picture, um, lean into that. Yeah, well, that's the thing. Like horror movies, I've heard it's not just horror movies, but horror movies that can all be filmed in one location. So you think of like Blair Witch, it's in the woods, in the tent, right? Or you think of, uh, you know, I'm trying to think of one where that this is the case, but even Get Out, you know, I know there are some more than one location, but really it's just that house. Yeah. Uh, you know what I'm saying? It all takes place there. That has an impact on production cost. And, uh, I think that's, I mean, that's the reason why you would try to do that. Or at least when you're trying to sell something, like if the whole thing takes place in one location, I think the, the money people are like, okay, let's, we can do this. We can do this yeah, cheaply. They, and we, and we filmed in LA, but I, I think, uh, yeah, if it's, if it's non-location specific, there might be, uh, that's, that's helpful too. She might, uh, film in an estate, um, that has a, uh, you know, a big, uh, refund. Right. Or, uh, or you know, uh, incentives to get you there. I would say for uh, this movie, uh, we were, you know, we were somewhat in, in one location, but not totally. So you, you probably start watching. You think it's all going to be one location, but we got a couple curveballs. And to keep uh, thematically with the book, there is a rodent also. Uh, what, what is your what is your obsession? What is your? I don't know. I, I I would have to go through the book and and remember. I mean, I did have hamsters as a kid. I did have a rat problem. That's where that story exterminator comes from i mean sometimes as as you know someone else has to read the book to tell you what your weird obsessions are <laughs> i mean someone that i gave the book to early on um uh where there were some different stories in there they were like yeah there's a lot of alcoholic white guys that are obsessed <laughs> with food and their dog and i was like well that makes some sense uh but maybe it's time for me to take this book and take out some stories and write some new ones but but for me i didn't see it i didn't see it at all yeah yeah i'm sure you know you kind of like in, inevitably it's like a, an x-ray of your psyche one way or another it's and it's also like is it nice to have people tell you who you are like you know what i'm saying like or is it like d disconcerting <laughs> I, I have found with with i have found it's it's nice to talk to strangers about the book right i found it not it's 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 great i mean anyone who picks up a copy and reads it is a, a hero in in my book and i owe you a, a beer but for for friends and like or people you haven't talked to in a while and they read it and i've gotten some dms or people reached out and they kind of oh, is everything okay or, well, <laughs> you're kind of weird in this story or like oh is this this person like i don't know i don't know what to say but if it's a stranger reading it i don't know obviously it, it's just First of all, it's nicer to have a stranger reading your books. You're like, oh, it's like a real, a real reader. Like, yeah. I'm like, where'd you hear about it? Oh, this is so exciting. So, so whatever they have to say, even if they hate it, if they got, if they read the whole thing, or there's some kind of engaged in it, that's exciting. And uh, if they want to, you know, um, uh, analyze me, that's that's much more comfortable than someone I 
someone I know where I'm constantly like reassuring them that, you know, this isn't that person they know. I'm mentally fine. Uh, <laughs> story doesn't mean that, you know, that kind of thing. Mentally fine with scare quotes around it. And uh, I'm going to go through the same thing next spring. Like my book is, my book is like way more explicitly personal, I think, than yours. Uh, I'm very excited. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, thank you. But I'm just like, I'm like, oh man, like my wife hasn't read it yet, which I know might seem strange, but like, I just, it involves like a wife character. So it's like, it's just so weird and you just got to roll with it, but I'm, I can't, it's going to be interesting. Let's just put it this way to see what the feedback is from people I know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I guess that's what you sign up for when you do this, but I want to yeah, ask I you one more thing about the movie, because this is exciting. You've directed a feature or are you? It's, it's very exciting. I, I know I kind of, um, I didn't bring up because I didn't know if we were going to get into that and, and nothing's been announced about the movie yet. But yes, it, this was this was like a thing where I'm still waking up now in the mornings because we just wrapped uh, maybe five weeks ago, either waking up and just a little moment of like, oh, or do I have to do stuff about the for the movie? Like feeling a little bit of panic or almost this feeling of like, was it all a dream? Did I just have this, you know, because I'm so excited that we, we got the movie in the can and I've been working so hard on it. That, um, yeah, it was, it was a, a very emotional experience, I guess I'm trying to say. Yeah, you directed That's a film. The, yeah. Are you editing it right now? We are editing it. I've got a great editor. Uh, luckily, he lives uh, very close to me. And uh, he, was, he was signed on even uh, before we started shooting. So it was really great. He even came to, you know, the set and he was editing, you know, the dailies. So, so he's already had a, uh, we've had a couple cuts of it. I showed it to a few people last week, and that was really exciting. It was the first time I'd, I'd watched it with – wasn't a, a large audience. It was just like 10 of us, but it was the first time I'd watched it with people. So that was really awesome. And, uh, yeah, I guess we're somewhere – we're not quite at the just tweak stage, but we're getting close. We're getting close. And would – I know you can't divulge this, but would people – recognize any actors in this movie or are these actors that are young and up and coming or something or yeah i don't know why i'm I, I, i'm not it's not even a, a big secret uh it's uh it's just that i don't know I, I we might do something in the trades uh yeah i think you'll recognize the actors i mean a couple of them have, have had their own tv shows i was so lucky to have these actors i mean they came on they i met them a week before they came on they nailed it i mean they're all actors that are used to having nice trailers and um getting paid good money and, and working with people that are a lot more experienced than me. So the fact that they came on and signed on to this movie and were hilarious and a joy to work with was really amazing. So what uh, was it like to work with Bill Murray? <laughs> uh, Bill's a huge prick. All right. The cat's <laughs> out of the bag. The cat is out of the bag. Um, yeah, it was really great. So, and, and just in terms of like where it, what's going to happen with this movie. So, you know, we submitted rough cuts, to some film festivals and then we uh yeah we have some ideas on where it could possibly be streaming uh on the other side of those film festivals is that how it goes like so you you find financing you put together a kind of streamlined production you get it done you get it in the can in two weeks you cut it and everything then you go to a film festival and then if it gets accepted to festivals then hopefully a streamer will want to acquire it I think that's mostly the situation now. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, yeah. And I've, I've been to film festivals with a, a short before. It's very exciting, the thought of, uh, fingers crossed, that we go to go to some festivals with a feature. Which ones? Like, I mean, obviously there's like Sundance. There's uh, 
Telluride, <laughs> New York. Yeah, Sundance, South by Southwest. I think we'll, we'll give both those a shot. Um, you know, there's some horror film festivals I'm not as familiar with. Uh, we might might go to those. Um, like Toronto has like Toronto After Dark. Yeah, Toronto. Yeah, we'll I've been I've been to Toronto's film festival. How was that? It was great. I love Toronto, and that was a it's a great time of year to be there. It's in like right after Labor Day, if I recall. And uh, my wife, well, we were dating back then. God, it was a long time ago, but. My story from that is that we went, I think I might've told this before on the show once before or something, but, uh, we went to Toronto. I kind of tagged along and, uh, I got tickets to go see the Coen brothers movie, a serious man. It was like the the world premiere or whatever of a serious man. And I sat right behind Tilda Swinton. So like I, I felt like so cool. I was like, and it's in this beautiful old theater in Toronto. And I'm a Cohen brother. I mean, everybody loves the Cohen brothers, right? So I was like, holy shit! And I watched that film in that movie in that room with all those people and all that like energy and excitement and expectation. And the stars were there and all this kind of stuff. And when the house lights went down after that film was over, I was like, I have just seen like Citizen Kane. Like, I was wow. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> yeah. My, like my opinion of the film was elevated. And I still, I actually think it's one of their most underrated films. Like, it's really dark and weird, but it's a good film. Uh, so I don't want to say that it's not a good film, but I don't know if it was like the next Citizen Kane, you know. With... <laughs> well, that, that's, I, I love that because that is one reason that I, I really like film festivals. It's like in the same way, you know, going to the theater, going to a movie theater, you're going to appreciate the movie more. You're, you're at least just going to give the movie a chance. You paid your money. You're going to, your ass is in the seat for two hours. When you go to a film festival, you put even more work into it. You've traveled there. You've waited in line. You've got the tickets. Um, you are really going to open yourself up to something that might be a lot more, you know, out of the box than you would ever watch streaming on TV. And I've got to say, there've been a a million, you know, there've been plenty of movies I've I've sat through at a film festival that, you know, I thought they were okay. And then the filmmakers come out and I get a little context for the movie. And then, you know, it doesn't totally change my opinion of the movie, but I just, I appreciate it a lot more. I don't know. I find them very, um, uh, very re- rejuvenating, very refreshing. As someone who works in the industry, I I always really uh, really enjoy seeing movies at film festivals, and I I hope those don't uh, go by the wayside with the, you know, everything that's happening. So yeah, I was gonna say because I think like the old you know arc was that like you know a film would go to the Sundance Film Festival, for example, and it would do very well. Like critics would get excited about it, and it would win like the Audience Award or the Special Jury Prize or whatever it's called. And then some production company like, you know, Miramax of your, uh, or whoever it is, you know, uh, universal, whatever would go in and there'd be like a bidding war and the filmmakers who had put this thing together on a shoestring begging for financing or whatever would suddenly be millionaires. Like, right. Like that was kind of like the dream. That's like the dream. That was the dream. Nowadays you take your film to Sundance and it generates some excitement. I would imagine it's like Netflix or Hulu one of these companies is most likely going to be writing the check, right? Does that happen? I think so. I mean, last year it happened. Was that last year or the year, year before? It's been a while since I've, I've been, but um, I feel like, you know, Palm Springs, the Adam Sandler uh, or the Andy Samberg movie was a big acquisition there. Now, I don't even remember who made that movie. So it's certainly not, that's not a scrappy, super scrappy indie. 
so you know it's Sundance. You have kind of the the out of nowhere super scrappy indies kind of competing with more lower budget Hollywood fare. Right. But uh, a lot of them they're all competing for the same platforms and same eyeballs. Uh, you know, I mean, certainly it, it does feel like the last few years, at least for me, there's not like a. It feels like that the filmmakers coming out of the festivals, uh, there's a, a a little less buzz. But I mean, that's that's just the the, the theatrical experience and the movies, in general. Uh, that there's kind of a a, a little, seems like there's a little less excitement around the indie world because there's also a little less excitement around the the blockbuster world just in general. But yeah, I don't know. If I go this year, I'll let you know. I'll give you I'll give you uh, the inside scoop on on what to expect in six months, what the hot acquisitions are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I mean, you... it's amazing. So much of the you know the the buzz machine of so many of the movies that you know, <laughs> then you go see in the theater. You're like, oh wow, what was everyone smoking up in uh, Park City that year? I guess it was the elevation. You know, Hollywood's been taken down a several pegs it seems like in terms of oh. its cultural its cultural centrality uh or whatever you oh know, yeah right i mean it's just not the same it's not the same as it used to be it's competing with so much else and you know we talked about this but it's it's worth repeating like man uh it's a big change for this town and, and that said i feel like getting like a netflix deal is still or it's shifted now like getting a netflix deal like an overall deal at one of these streamers or whatever is like the that's like the peak of cultural achievement now. Uh, sadly, it is. And, it, and uh, you know, everybody knows it. I mean, in terms of looking for money for, for, you know, this movie I was trying to make, like I would call up, called up a few people who, you know, years ago when I was in, in the screenwriting world and had sold a, a spec or two, people that had been like, oh, if you ever make a movie, let me know. Maybe I, you know, maybe I know someone with money. Like now everyone's like way too savvy. They're like, oh, I don't know. The movie business isn't it kind of like on its way out or isn't it dying. <laughs> and I'm like, what? You're like a hedge fund guy. Like, don't <laughs> tell me about the movie business or the, the, the just even the, the cachet of like, hey, maybe, you know, you could be a producer. You get to stand on stage at Sundance. Nobody cares anymore. Like that kind of thing. Or you, you might meet a movie star. Nobody cares about that. What's a movie star now? Which right. is a, which not to, you know play the world's smallest violin for movie stars. But as a writer, like, I mean, I, I like movie stars because you know what? They want to play what I, you know, they want to play interesting characters. They're like one of the most important gatekeepers for getting something made movie star, TV star, just, you know, actors that, that are, that are good and interesting and have some cachet to have one of them interested in your project is a, is a, is a great thing that helps you get somewhere and get the project made and more and more, I'm like, I don't even know who the hell a movie star is anymore. And the the ones that do seem to be bankable with the high Instagram followings, like I, I don't really care yeah. <laughs> about them. Or I guess I just don't, I just don't know, you know, I just don't know them. So it's um, it's tricky. So basically, I'm I'm crying for like, I'm like, oh, where are the where are the where are the new Tom Cruises and um, well, yeah. Which I never thought I'd be crying for for new Tom Cruise. <laughs> in, in some way, I am. I should tell uh, listeners that Duncan's walls are plastered with photos of Tom Cruise, <laughs> old movie posters, uh, even the ceiling. There's a large one on the ceiling, which is strange, but that's that's my Tommy. Yeah, I guess I just have to get into like I don't know, sign on board with like Logan Paul. I don't even know who. Yeah. yeah. All right, so I'm of two minds on this, as I often am. Like on the one side. There's, I think, a kind of like vindictive base <laughs> uh, aspect to my personality. I think it's the literary side of me, 
if you're a literary person, you're used to being on the periphery of the cultural conversation. You know what I'm saying? You're always on the outside. No one gives a shit is basically the, yeah. what you hear. Or if they do, it's just like a niche. And, you know, there are people that care, but there just aren't enough or whatever. And now this is happening to Hollywood. And I think Hollywood never thought it would happen to them or something. You know, it's, you don't believe it's going to happen to you until it does. So there's a literary person in me that or you know, the literary side of me and the vindictive side of me is like, well, welcome to the party. You know, now you're fragmented too, you know, or whatever, or peripheralized too. And then there's the film major side of me because I do have a film degree and, you know, I grew up watching films and loving films. I watched just last night, uh, Out of Sight, the Steven Soderbergh movie. Great movie. Great movie. And I was just on like Showtime or something. You know what I'm saying? I was just flicking channels and I stopped on it. And I was like, oh my God. George Clooney and Jennifer Lopez are incandescent stars. Like they are, like it is just so obvious that they are both stars. And maybe it's just the trick of the movies, but I don't think so. Like I think some people just are like magic on screen. You know what I'm saying? And oh yeah, I don't mean to. I mean, listen, I'm. I don't know. I'm not like a huge raving fan of either of them. I don't dislike them, but I'm not like a, a stan for like George Clooney or. Uh, Jennifer Lopez, but I think it might be the best thing either of them ever did. Like Jennifer Lopez, I mean, George Clooney's been in a couple of other movies that I like. Uh, I, I think I might agree with you. And, uh, you know, I saw Hustlers and uh, I've seen like everything, uh, so many George Clooney movies. Yeah. And I am a big George Clooney fan. I'm like, I feel like uh, he's a star. He's like yeah, an old he's school. A real star. Yeah. And a, a good dude. I mean, he seems like a nice guy, you know, but maybe like he's a little. I don't know, but he's a good dude. I don't think he's, a, I don't think he's a bad human being and, and he's a good, and he's in it for the right reasons or whatever. But what I kept thinking to myself was like, Oh God, I'm like, I miss this. You know, I miss these like old, like this kind of movie is my kind of movie. Like, where's this? I like romantic movies, which might surprise people to listen to or who are listening, but I love that. And I think that the genre of movie that I most love is romantic comedy. And I don't know if Out of Sight even qualifies. In my world, it does. There's a little bit of comedy to that movie. All right. You like your romantic comedies with, with some action and some... Uh... Or just some intelligence. It's such an okay. intelligent movie. And like, I kept thinking to myself, like, why have George Clooney and Jennifer Lopez never been on screen together again? Like, Did they not get along on set? Like, They're so obviously great on screen together. And uh, I don't know, man. Like, if, you, I don't, if, if you're listening and you haven't seen that film or you haven't seen it in a while, like... Watch it and write to me and let me know if you agree. Like, it's just like, it just kind of blew my mind when I was sitting there and made me sort of feel like wistful. Uh, I think this tweet writes itself. Yeah, let's get George <laughs> Clooney and Jennifer Lopez in the movie again. I feel like, you know what else it made me feel like? It made me feel like she has been misused by the oh, industry. Totally. Like, yeah. she's so... I don't know what to do with her. She's, yeah. I, but, I mean, she, she clearly... Uh, is way better than a lot of the films that she's been in. And maybe this happens all the time to actors and maybe actresses in particular, but I'm just like, Oh God, she like with Soderbergh, like he brought out the best in her, I feel like. And she, uh, she has such good chops and is like so likable on screen. I don't know the whole thing. Just, it was just we, the whole star kind of idea, like r rolling around in my head. No, that might be my favorite Soderbergh movie too and i feel like yeah we did not know how good we had it in the 90s right for movies we really didn't so i i, I keep being like hold it am i going to be 10 years from now am i going to be looking back on 
2021 being like, oh, I had it pretty good back then. <laughs> it's hard to imagine. I'm like, what would I even be clinging to? I mean, I, I did look, I, I was going to go to the movies the other day at Alamo Draft House, and I did look at it and I was like, hold it. I do want to see every movie here, which was very rare. And, uh, and you know, good. there have been some good movies. Like, you know, I love Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I love Parasite. You know, there's 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 still good movies coming out. I, I feel like it only, only takes a few to really uh, make a tsunami of money for us to have a couple more couple more good years of uh, Hollywood. So yeah. yeah. Keep the faith. And hey, who knows how it's going to go? And, you know, it just might be the case that the theatrical experience gets a little bit more niche. I cannot imagine it fully going away. And I think there are going to be people who really love movies who are going to keep going to the theater. I got to believe. I would think so. I mean, you got to want to get out of your apartment, your house at some point. Yeah. I mean, what, you either go to a coffee shop, you go out to eat, you go to ice cream, you go to the movies, or you go bowling. I mean, that's it. There's nothing else. Uh, so you've got the movie that you're directing. You've got movies your book, in the can. Movies in the can. You've got The Cult in My Garage, which is now out into the world. Uh, I imagine you've got other screenplays. Like, you know, you, you always have multiple projects on your hard drive, I would imagine. Yeah, you know, I mean, right now I'm, I'm, I've been pretty pretty busy still with editing the movie. And I'm trying to, you know, promote the book. But uh, I was doing the movie for a while, so that kind of took uh, the wind out of my promotional sales a little bit. But, yeah, I'm just getting back into – you know, back to the grind, back to the grind of pitching, back to the grind with meeting with people about, you know, their assignments, trying to get on a show, just the, you know, the the Hollywood grind. And it'll, it'll stop in like two weeks because the whole town will shut down for the holidays. And I'll be like, oh, OK, right. Guess we're taking a couple of weeks. Better better write something now. Yeah. Yeah. Back back at it. Got it. Well, I wish you luck with all of it. Congrats on this book. It's a really good book. And, uh, I, like, are you going to, are you writing other fiction? Like, is there a novel in the drawer or is there, I've, I've been, I've been tr trying to nibbling around. Oh, that's the worst way to describe it. But, <laughs> but hopefully the novel will turn into a novel, but it might just turn into, you know, get 20 pages into it, 30 pages into it, it might turn into a story, but it'd be nice to turn into a novel. But, um, yeah, just, uh, just, grinding away brad just grinding away but also thank you for having me on the podcast because i've known you for a while i've also been a big fan of the podcast for a while so uh you know i'm this was such a, a thrill to be on here i really feel like i'm uh yeah i mean if I've, if i was sitting in the seat i'd be sitting and you know trying to fill very big shoes being here so this is uh, a real treat oh well yeah it's my pleasure uh congrats again best of luck with everything and, and hope we uh cross paths before too long that would be great Thanks for reading. All right, there we have it. There we go. That is Duncan Birmingham. And his story collection is called The Cult in My Garage, available now from Maudlin House. You can follow Duncan on social, uh, on Twitter, at Duncan Berm. Same goes for Instagram. The book, again, is called The Cult in My Garage. Short stories. It's a wonderful collection. You should read it. Go get it right now. Out there now from Maudlin House. The Other People podcast is offered freely. If you want to support it, go to patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Tip your server. Keep this thing going. If you want to write to me, the address, the email address is letters at otherppl.com. The Other People podcast has its own official app. 
it is free. Go get the app wherever apps are available. It's a great way to listen. This show also has its own YouTube channel. Did you know that? The entire archive of this podcast is on YouTube. It's free. Search for the Other People with Brad Listy podcast by name at YouTube. Other PPL. And then subscribe to the channel. It's free. It helps the cause, believe it or not, if you hit that subscribe button. It's an easy thing to do. Another easy thing to do, if you have a few minutes, is to rate and review the show over at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Rate it and review it. It helps the uh, show get bumped up in the algorithmic situation. Helps other people find the show, basically. So it's, you know, what? The holidays are here. Like, it's all imminent. The travel, the the family, the, the navigating COVID protocols or not, or whatever it is that you're contending with. Maybe none of it. And that's a problem. I don't know what, you know, it just seems like a loaded month, man. So much going on. I'm trying to just stay calm, stay kind, not freak out. So far, I've done okay. But, uh, I don't know, man. Something always happens. You never know. (laughs) 